Good morning. Uh, as Jesse said earlier, hope you got your coffee. And we are proud to support Darren and Brittany and How Bow Bow. There's plenty next door. Uh, I won't take it personal if you will get coffee, but I will take it personal if you don't come back. Um, so I want to start with the title of this sermon. This is why you're going to need your coffee. Uh, today is brought to you by the letter E. The eschaton and the elect. And uh, if you're not familiar with, if you're, if, you're familiar with, if you're familiar with those terms, you're really excited right now. If you're not, you're like, well, what is he talking about? So uh, just address these terms because they, they need to be defined. And these are the best terms for this sermon. So the eschaton, the last, the, the final event, the end of the age, all those images are in play. It's the same root from where we get eschatology. The study of the last things, the study of the end times, what will be to come at the, the end of human time and history. And so typically when this passage is preached, it is preached to defend a particular eschatology, a particular view of the end. And I was really tempted, but I'm not going to. Um, but what it, the, the, the passage is really getting at is the eschaton, the end event itself. And what that means for the saints. That's why it's the eschaton and the elect. Because Jesus mentioned it three times. And the elect, I've heard many people try to do a lot of theological gymnastics to to explain away what the word elect means. It means to choose. That's it. The elect, the ones that God has chosen. So the end times, the end events, the end of all things and God's people. That's, that's what this message is about because that's what this passage is about. And the reason I want to start there and lean in there and the reason I'm going to approach this message the way that I do is because too many people get caught in the weeds. Too many people build their entire doctrines, their entire religion, their entire faith on these apocalyptic events. There are no shortage of prophecy conferences and uh, Jonathan said two weeks ago he got, a, he got a mailer where someone was sending him, you know, this big prophecy thing with pictures of, of uh, Biden and Osama bin Laden and all of these things. I'm sure you, you, you've seen that. I wish he saved it because that would have been a great visual. Um, but there are many people out there. Some of you have met those people. Some of you are those people. If you are, stop it. But if you've ever met one of those people whose entire doctrine rises and falls and is this the event, is this the event, is this when it's going to happen, is this where it's, where it's going to happen, they are frantic and they are scared and they are confused. Because no one knows. If Jesus doesn't know, you can't know. So stop trying. And we'll get into that more next week. And if you're that type of person, this is not the message for you and this is precisely the message for you. So we're not told when it will happen. We're not told where it will happen. We're not told all of the details. We are told it will happen. And we are told it will happen not to be worried, but to be aware, to be ready, to be watchful. So the whens and the wheres and all, and, and all that, it's not our concern. The concern with how these things are going to happen is never our concern above the gospel. Never our concern above assurance in faith in Christ. And it is not the point of the text, so we won't get into that. And no, I'm not just punting the ball. I'm not scared of hard issues. Um, 
But I'm going to get to the point of the text because that's Jesus' point. So we will handle the things the way Jesus does in relation to his chosen people. So we're going to focus on what we do understand, what we do know, and what that means for the believer. And we're not going to camp out in controversies. So with that being said, there is so much to handle here. There is so much on the cutting room floor. I changed sermon titles three times. I've cut out a lot of details. So I do want to handle quite a bit, and most of our application will be at the end. So that's how we're going to approach this. And then going into this, I'm going to help you reading this passage. So uh, Mark chapter 13, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew, Matthew 24, 25, Luke chapter 21, what we call the Olivet Discourse. Jesus sitting on the Mount of Olives, overlooking the temple, telling his disciples about the final things. If you read this literally, every word of it literally, your head's going to explode. This is mainly symbolic. This is mainly figurative. These are not meant to be taken word for word as a news account of what's going to happen. This is to paint a picture. This is to sober you up, to wake you up so that you do not fall asleep, as we will see next week. And as we saw last week, the repetition here is important. There'll be the wills and the wins. These things are going to happen. But what we're really going to key in on are, to help us understand the structure of this text are the way that Jesus talks about the days. These things versus those days. We'll get to that in just a moment. And of course, elect. Talking about his people in each time. So before we explain the structure of, uh, and before we even get into the text, I want to explain the structure of the chapter. And before we do that, um, we talk about this a little bit in our Zephaniah study. But this is really uh, helpful when you're reading the prophets. Because many people read the prophets and are confused because we are 21st century Westerners. We expect when you write, you start at point A and you begin at, or you end at, at point Z. And everything is chronological and everything falls in line perfectly one after the other. And we like logical progression. That is not the way that the prophets speak. That is not the way that the prophets see. The, the, the prophets are not reporting the news. They are talking about future events. And Jesus, as the final prophet, I think the, one of the best explanations I've ever heard, and many pastors have, have used it, so I'm not attributing it to anyone. But it's kind of like when you view mountains. Anyone ever been on the Blue Ridge Parkway? If you've been on the Blue Ridge Parkway, it's one of the most amazing places on the planet. But when you stop on the side of the road, like every time there's an opening because it's, it's, it's beautiful, you see, oh, there's a mountain, and there's a mountain, and there's a mountain. It looks like these mountains are right next to each other. And then if you look... To the left, there's mountains as far as you can see. And then you look to the right, there's mountains as far as you can see. And if you're looking at them, it thinks, oh, these mountains are right on top of each other. But if you were to drive to them, it would take hours and hours. When you get to the first mountain, the next one is miles after it. And the next one is miles after that. And so there is this, this purview when you are up in high altitude and looking out over the mountains where you can see all these things at the same time. This is how prophets are given visions. This is how Jesus, the creator of time itself, sees these things. They are all in his view. And some are right in front of the others. Some are right next to the others. Some are far off, but they are spoken about in the same breath. So I want to give you one example here. Turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, this is the prophecy of the one who is to come, one of many in Isaiah. Uh, and this should be on the screen as well. So I'm going to 
look at quite a few passages and we're going to try to move through them quickly. But I just want to give you an example. This is the prophet Isaiah speaking about the one who is to come. These, these words should be familiar. This is Isaiah looking out at the mountain range of redemptive history that is to come. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of God, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. What does it sound like? This sounds like Jesus. This sounds like the first coming. This sounds like Jesus' ministry. But, same breath, same sentence in the Hebrew, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity uh, the, the meek of the earth. Okay, so far so good. Same breath. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with his breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Oh, wait a second. That's the same guy? Yeah. It's the same prophecy. It's the same sentence. But Isaiah is seeing the first coming and the second coming of Jesus together as one. Because it is, it is the, the, the same object of the prophecy. So we're going to get a little bit of that in chapter 13. This is how Jesus is approaching it. And so there is a parallelistic type progression in chapter 13. So here's one thing I want to understand before I'm going to put the outline up on the screen. Um, a literary tool that is used in Greek that is not really present in English is the difference between this and that, between these and those. There is one word in the, the Greek for this and one word for that. In the plural, it's these. Plural, it's those. Let me tell you what I mean. This Bible is mine. It's the, ones, it's the one I'm holding in my hands. This Bible contains 66 books inspired by God and written through human messengers. That office over there contains a different Bible. This book versus those books over there, those books, there are many Bibles in there, and there are books that complement this Bible. So you speak about something that is near as this, or these, these waters are on this table. Those waters are back there. Make sense? So Jesus is using these, these, these terms, and he's not using them without distinction. So I'm going to put this up on the screen. What we looked at last week, what defined that section, verses 1 through 13, these things, things that are nearer, things that will happen sooner, these, these are the upcoming things. What we're going to look at today are those those things that day, things that are far off. You get it? 1 through 13, these things are near. It's dealing primarily with the fall of Jerusalem. But what we're going to deal with now are those things that day, the great tribulation and the final second coming of Jesus. Next week, we're going to bring them together where we see these things, this day in the fall of Jerusalem again, and those days, that day, and the coming watchfulness, coming of Jesus and the watchfulness of the saints as he approaches. Here's where this is helpful. If you read Mark chapter 13 as if it is expressly chronological and expressly literal, you're going to be confused. And we'll, we're going to deal with some of that confusion next week. Hopefully we'll wrap it up better. But I want you to get what Jesus is, is, is doing here. Jesus is dealing with the near and the far off in 
in, in parallel with, with, with one another. And we know that to be true because of one very important verse in Mark or Matthew. Matthew 24 begins the Olivet Discourse. Verse 3, I'm going to be flipping back and forth to Matthew quite a bit, so you can keep your finger there if you'd like. But look at what the disciples ask. This is extremely important to understand this. The outline I gave you um, would just be opinion if it wasn't in the text, but if it also wasn't asked specifically by the disciples. So as he sat in the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be near and what will be the sign of, of your coming and the end of the age? The disciples understood there are near things and there are far things. They're asking two questions. That's why Jesus is answering two questions in Mark chapter 13. Everybody good so far? So hopefully this is helpful before we go through. So Jesus, in the same discourse, is addressing near things and far things. Today, we're going to focus on the far things. We know that by the repetition of those days far off. Um, one more helpful text before we get into ours. I was going to read it later, but I'm going to do it now. Uh, Jeremiah 33, 14 through uh, 16. The Old Testament commonly uses, we see this in Zephaniah, we see this in, in many Old Testament books. See this a lot in Joel. I really wanted to get into Joel chapters 2 and 3, but I could not. There's not enough space on the paper or uh, space in your brains to take it all. But if you have time, the imagery in Joel 2 and 3 is, is, very, is parallel to um, what we're covering this morning. So, Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah is prophesying hundreds of years before. He's, he's a contemporary to Zephaniah. He says, dealing with Israel right before or during their, their fall to Babylon. Jeremiah 33, verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. There's a future day. I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah in those days. And at that time, remember, this and these, um, uh, excuse me, yeah, this and these, that and those. In those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So that's just one of many, 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 many examples of prophets seeing things far off. That and those are looking forward. That will be us this morning. All right, I think I've exhausted that point. Let's look at our text. Mark chapter 13, I'm going to begin reading in verse 14 through verse 27. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days." And then if anyone says to you, look, here is Christ, and look, there he is, do not believe it. 
For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. You are a great and awesome God. Forgive us when we for one millisecond think we could understand the depths of who you are or what you have planned. Forgive us when our arrogance thinks that everything that you declare in your word can fit into our little brains. Let us with confidence and peace Say that the secret things belong to the Lord. Lord, forgive any desire to have all the answers or have it all figured out or to have all of our, our questions answered before we trust you. Lord, help us to read your word as a child who believes and trusts the words of his father, who hears the words of encouragement as shouting loudly, and the words of destruction and damnation to the world is something to not be feared. Help us to know who our Father is and trust in Him and rest in Him. Encourage your people, the saints, this morning that if we are elected, it's not because we are good, it's because you are good and merciful and gracious and let us never presume or take it for granted. If there's any in this room this morning who does not have that confidence, Lord, I pray that this shakes them to the core. Because if we do not have that confidence, if we are not united in Christ, this should terrify us. Holy Spirit, please make this clear to us this morning. Help me and all of my explanations to get out of the way so that you will help your people understand and be fed by your word to your glory, exalting the name of Jesus Christ as we shout and proclaim, come, Jesus, come. In his name we pray, amen. So first thing we're going to look at, but when you see, remember I told you last week, we're going to see this theme all throughout the chapter there is sight and there is spiritual sight. Understand these things when you see the abomination of desolation. Matthew's really helpful here. In Matthew 24, 15, he says, the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. And what will he be doing? Here, Mark says, standing where he ought not to be. Matthew gets more specific. Standing in the holy place. So you've got the one that Daniel prophesied about, and he's going somewhere specifically. He's, he's standing in the holy place. He's standing. He is positioning himself where only God ought to be positioned. And so then he says, let the reader understand. Well, thanks. Thanks, Jesus. That makes perfect sense. Now that you said that, it's all clear. Yeah, we got it. 
But what he's saying is let the reader understand. If you understand Daniel, you'll understand this. So let's turn to Daniel. I want to give you a really quick primer on how everybody loves Daniel. When he's in the lion's den, the fiery furnace, you know, him standing up to Nebuchadnezzar. And then you get into the prophecies and everyone's like, yeah, I'm going to stop reading because none of this makes any sense. I'm going to give you a little primer on how to read the prophecies of Daniel. Ignore all mentions of time. This is where people get themselves in trouble. You do not know the day or the hour. Know that God knows them. They are there to show that God has a plan, but not for you to figure out. These people that Jesus is coming September 14th, 1914. Every one of these cults who's made these false predictions should die, but they don't. People keep listening, and I don't know why. But we don't need to fall into that. So I'm going to read chapter 9, verses 23 through 27. I just want you to listen to the content. Don't try to figure out the, the weeks. All right? Daniel 9, 23. At the beginning... Of your pleas for mercy. This is Daniel calling out. A word went out. And I have come to tell, you, tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. First thing here. The love of God for his people. I am telling you this because I love you and I want you to be prepared. I don't want you to be ignorant. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. All along, there is understanding for God's people. This is meant to be understood. Now we're going to hear a lot of weeks. We're going to hear a lot of times. Pay attention to the content. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. So dealing with the people of God and Jerusalem. To finish the transgression. To put an end to sin. Why is all this happening? It's important for us too. To put an end to sin. To put an end to transgression. And to atone for iniquity. This is about atonement. This is about the covering of God's people. And say in salvation from sin. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. This is about God setting apart his people and God setting apart a new place. That's what this, pro- this prophecy is about. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to reestablish and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, we'll see the prince in just a moment, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built up again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. The temple was destroyed. The temple will be built up again. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come, there's a a, a good prince and a bad prince, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and the end there will be war. Here it is, the abomination of desolation. Desolations are decreed. God commanded it. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. Short time, and half a week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. The abomination of desolation, tied to the temple, tied to Jerusalem, tied to the people of God. He will come until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. We're going to deal with all of this this morning. Hopefully sometime before dinner. But I want you to see this. If you understand Daniel, you understand this. I am a God who is jealous for my holiness and my holy place. I am jealous for my people. There is a wicked prince. He's not a king. He's a prince. He's got some power. He does not have ultimate power. I also have a prince. I will send him to encourage my people. And the end of that wicked prince is coming. 
He will create desolation, but I will destroy the desolator. Look at chapter 12 of Daniel. This is the, the final end. He gets another vision, another mountain range in, in the future. At that time, verse 1 of chapter 12, shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge over your people. I wish I could unpack that more, but I can't. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never been since there was a nation till that time. Will sound very much like what we see in Mark. But at that time, again, that, looking to the future, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. The, the final days, the final day of judgment, the sheep and the goats. And those who are wise shall shine like brightness of the sky above. In our passage this morning in Mark, Jesus is going to talk about the stars falling from the sky. And I'll get into that more in a minute. But why will we not need stars? Because the people of God, the wise, will be shining like the sky. We don't need the sun anymore because Jesus is our light. We don't need stars anymore because the saints will shine brightly. This is why recreation is so beautiful. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal this book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Sound familiar? But we're not there yet. So this is what Jesus is talking about. The final plan of all things. And we'll look at one more passage in Matthew later on. All right, I got to move quickly or we are never going to get through this. All right. So let's be honest before we go any further. No one fully understands this. I do not fully understand this. No one in history other than, no one in history. If you are not God in heaven or incarnate, you don't understand what these words mean fully. So let's just be clear with that. But I do want to help you with what we can understand. So these details here, the abomination of desolation, when that happens, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is in the housetop not go down, nor enter into his house or take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to his cloak, uh, for his cloak. And alas, who, women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. Um, there, in many of these prophecies, there's an immediate and an ultimate fulfillment. There's a lot of details here that, are, that did happen in the fall of Jerusalem. But the historical details don't always match up. So, one on why this is symbolic. Daniel speaks of a man, the abomination of desolation. Jesus personifies it. He is standing. But Luke says it's a Roman army. So, if we're trying to be literal here, you'll see oh, the, the, the Bible is, is conflicting and disagreeing with itself. You can personify an army. The point is, someone is claiming and usurp, trying to usurp the power of God, and they should not be, whether one person or an entire nation or an entire army. What we do know, this is tribulation within Judea. This is a warning to the people in that area, because this is where God began to build his nation. This is where God's going to culminate all things. I don't know how or when that's going to happen. Don't ask me. But we see partial fulfillment of this during the intertestamental period. The rise of the Maccabees, the Maccabean revolt. And so during that time, there was this wicked ruler who rose up, Antiochus Epiphanes, who 
claimed to be God, who's setting up a, um, a te- an altar to Zeus in the temple, sacrificing animals and sacrificing people. A wicked dude. They called him the abomination of desolation. And the Jews rode up and, they, and they, 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 they won the battle for a time. They were independent for less than 100 years. And since the disciples knew their history and they were good Jews, it's like Jesus saying, remember 9-11? Remember when those two planes flew into the towers? We, we all know that. Even if you're too young to know that, you should know that. Everyone in here who was alive at that time, you know exactly where you were. You know exactly what, what, what happened. This is something that will stick in our minds for the rest of our lives, and it will be told to our children. That is the same thing. Remember the abomination of desolation. It's that bad, but worse. That's what Jesus is saying here. Remember what Daniel talked about. You've seen, you've seen it partially. It's going to get worse than that. And so there are many parallels to Emperor Titus's destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Many parallels. But again, the historic details don't add up. So one... Um, most of the Jews fled uh, out of Jerusalem before the war. And they didn't fled in, fled, flee into mountains. They, flew in, they fled into cities. This didn't happen in summertime or wintertime. It happened in summertime. So if we're looking at expressly literally, we're going to be frustrated. The point is, this is not good. And I'll give you a few lessons from these, these verses. But the point is there is a partial fulfillment in the near future and a complete fulfillment In the far-off future, there's something else to come. But from these verses, 14 through 18, a couple practical lessons. Number one, when difficulty comes, where is safety? It is not in the cities. We see this again and again biblically. You do not run to where the people are and try to find your, your, your security among man. You flee to the mountains. Literally and figuratively, that is where God's strength is. You go and depend on the Lord. Don't depend on other people. Lesson number one. Lesson number two. Don't go back for your cloak. This is also important. Don't be so attached to your stuff because when tribulation comes, when wickedness comes, don't be like, I got to get my phone and my, and my tablet and all the other things that I think I need. Don't go back for that. Hold the things of this world so loosely that as soon as you need to, you can drop them all at a drop of a hat. This is also what Jesus says when he talks about following him. Don't go back to get married. Don't go back to break in your new oxen or buy a piece of land and and, and look at it. Leave those things. I am greater than all those things. And when the tribulation comes, don't be consumed with those things. And the third thing, there is a a beautiful compassion and concern for Jesus for women here. Alas, there's there's a heartbreaking sigh here. I really feel for the women who are pregnant during those times. The ones who are given birth or have small children. Out of all, out of anyone, out of all the things that are going on, Jesus has this concern for women, the women who are most vulnerable at that time. And so you get a bit of God's concern for his people and concern for the weak and vulnerable during that time and a special concern for mothers. So, Dealt with that quickly. Verse 19. For in those days, again, those days. He says those who are nursing in those days looking far ahead. Verse 19. For in those days there will be such a tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. This this verse brings so much needed light to the whole prophecy. 
Matthew distinguishes, if you're Matthew 24, um, between tribulation in verse 9, which will happen during the uh, fall of the temple. It's going to be bad. There's going to be tribulation. And then great tribulation in verse 21 in this very section. So Matthew makes a distinguish, the distinction between tribulation, verse 21 of chapter 24. For then there will be a great tribulation, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now and, and never will be. What are we saying here? It has been bad for the church at times in history. It, it, it was bad for the Jews when the temple fell. But it will never be as bad as the great tribulation. Never can be, never will be. There will be something that no one has ever seen before. And I know it feels like it, but we're not there yet. It can get worse and it will get worse. There have been faithful believers in every age in history who have said, I think now is the time. The Romans are the worst. The Vikings are the worst. The uh, pagans are the worst. The, 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 the Pope is the worst. Every era in history, they thought, is it now? Is it now? Is it now? And we're not wrong to think that, but it's not now. We'll know when it's now, but it's not right now. It could be five minutes from now, but it's not right now. So bringing in the picture from last week, we talked about the, the birth pains. And so this uh, will deal with Paul's explanation of this a little later as well. But continuing the, the picture of Jesus said, these are just the beginnings of the birth pains. The birth pains begin when I, when I ascend and the, the world's going to be groaning for my second coming. It's, it's just like contractions. They start further and further apart and you will feel them, but then they get closer and closer and closer together. The birth pains are still happening. They may feel closer together, but they will be most close together right before the baby comes. And then the, the joy of new life comes in. There is great pain before the joy. That is what is being described here. The final labor pains that give birth to new life, new creation that Jesus is ushering in. So it's going to get worse before it gets better. Like we said last week, the chaos or the storm before the calm. Now we get some of Jesus' purpose in here, verse 20. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, those days, no human being would be saved. If this continued, it's that bad that if it kept going, everything would be destroyed. But Jesus says that God himself cuts short the days. Why? For the sake of the elect. What does elect mean? Those he chose. He shortened the days. Why the days? Why do these days have to come in the first place? God, just like in Daniel, God is a holy and just God who is jealous for his worship, but he is also jealous for his people. And it is for their sake that he doesn't destroy the whole world, just like he told Moses. I can destroy all of them and start over with you. But he doesn't because of his own. And if it wasn't for the elect, no one would be saved. This is common grace on all of mankind because God's people have not been brought home yet. For the sake of the elect. Here's what this verse tells us against many false teachings. The Bible never tells us the elect will not face tribulation. We see that here. The elect will face tribulation. But it won't be worse than it is because he loves us. 
And for our sake, he will cut it short. And this is his, uh, this is his intention in all of redemptive history, preserving his own for the sake of his glory and his people. It's continuing on. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Three things we're going to deal with here quickly. Were there false Christs during the fall of Jerusalem? Absolutely. Will there be false Christs in the end? Absolutely. Saying, look, there he is. Look, there's Jesus. Let me tell you just how, what do we do with this? First thing, you won't have to ask. Is that Jesus? Is that Jesus? You will know. There will be a trumpet from heaven. There will be, sound, there'll be, there'll be clouds of thunder. The, scar, the stars are going to fall from the sky. You won't have to ask. If you have to ask, is that Jesus? It's not Jesus. And we'll get into that when Paul explains it. They're going to perform signs and wonders. Notice the difference. Jesus was sparing in his signs and wonders. He didn't go everywhere doing everything everyone asked him to do. He was not their puppet so they could believe in signs. He used his signs intentionally so that they would trust him and know who he is. False Christs, they want attention for themselves. False Christs want you to see how great and powerful they are. They want you to follow them. That is a big difference. And then lastly, this very difficult phrase, and will lead many astray, if possible, the elect. Matthew adds, even the elect. So there are two, person, two possible interpretations. I think both are helpful here. Number one, the most common is even, meaning the desire of these wicked teachers and the desire of their prince who, who directs them is such that they would want to lead everyone astray, even the elect, if it were possible. And we know that it is not possible for those who are in Christ, who are held in his hand, as we read earlier in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from his love. It is not possible to pull someone who is his away from him and give him to his enemy. Do you think our God is that weak? It's not possible. That is the most common, and I believe that to be true. There's another plausible explanation that will lead away if possible, the elect. You will never be able to lead one, of, lead one of God's own away ultimately. But temporarily, maybe. I think there are many false teachers out right now who there are believers sitting under bad and false teachings every week, hearing people call themselves prophets and distorting scripture, and the elect are led astray for a time. I think that is an appropriate interpretation as well. So we must be sober-minded not to fall into false teachings and those who are calling people to themselves to glorify themselves. But ultimately, if you are his, you will, you will not be led astray. Jesus says here, the whole purpose of all this, but be on guard. I told you these things beforehand. I want you to know, don't be surprised, be on guard. This is for you, not to scare you, but to put you on guard. The command we saw last week and we're going to see again next week. It begs the question. If there's a near tribulation that has already happened, there's a great, great tribulation that's going to happen, when does the believer get to not be on guard? When should we be on guard? When do we get to let our guard down? We are always on guard. 2 Timothy 4, 5. Amen. Should be able to get the verse there. 
No, I didn't put it in there. That's, that's my fault. All right, so 2 Timothy 4, 5, quickly. Says this, as for you, always be sober-minded. Enduring suffering, do the work in evangelists, fulfill your ministry. Always on guard. That's it. When should we be on guard? When should we be waiting? When should we be alert? Always. When should you be sober-minded? Always. Now the problem with passages like this, and again, this is a really quick run-through, but I want you to get the purpose, I want you to get the structure, I don't want you to get bogged down in the details. The problem with passages like this is why people are so scared of eschatology. They're so frightened by the imagery that they've been fed, coupled with misuse and distortion of these texts to keep people in fear. It is not supposed to be for the saints. I want you to think about this. You know, if you, we hear the same scary story again and again, you ever tell the same story or tell a story one time to a kid and, and, and they believe it? You know, they're looking under their bed for monsters and boogeymen in, in the closet. You keep hearing the same story over and over again, you're going to begin to like, is, is, maybe there's some, some truth to that. Maybe that is true. Don't be like a child and, and, and fall for the scary stories that have been told to you without evidence, without cause, without investigating the scriptures for yourself. This is why we're in many of the problems we're in right now. This is what the news does. The news tells scary bedtime stories to adults who figuratively hide under their, hide under their beds waiting for them to tell them that it's okay. Don't do that. It'd be like if we read the, um, the uh, Big Bad Wolf and the Three Little Pigs. All of us have heard this, this story. And so if you hear it again and again, like, oh, where's the big bad wolf? And if you start believing that the big bad wolf is going to come for you and he's going he's to eat you, you're reading the story wrong. Are you a pig? Are you made of bacon? Like, the, the, the wolf is not coming for you. Don't read this as if, it, as if it applies to you. If you are a saint, if you are a sheep, it doesn't apply to you. If you are a sheep, don't fear the wolf. Fear the Lord. The wolf has no teeth unless God gives them to him. But if you're a goat, if you do not know the Lord, you better fear this as if you're running around with a bacon jumpsuit on. <laughs> David said, sounds kind of nice. <laughs> oh, boy. I am never going to finish this text. All right. <laughs> um, so I want to I show you Paul's connection before we get to our last section Paul's connection between our two sections here the previous one about the abomination of desolation and this one about the coming of the son of man so turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 I am not going to deal with eschatological uh, philosophies but I am going to deal with eschatology biblically not that eschatology is not biblical. No one hear me say that. It is fruitful when you keep it in the scriptures. Second Thessalonians 1. I'm going to read this through quickly, but I want you to see the parallels, and I'm going to bring a few things to your attention here. Now, can 2 Thessalonians 1, or excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers... 
We are right here where Jesus is talking about. Jesus prophesied that he's coming and he's going to gather his saints. Paul begins to explain it. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Sound familiar? Either by a spirit or by a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. How do we know that, we, that the things that seem to be from apostles or seem to be legit shouldn't worry us? Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. So Paul talks about this man of lawlessness. He, he agrees with Daniel here. There will be an uh, abomination of desolation with Jesus. He the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Abomination of desolation, the one standing where he ought not in the holy place. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in, in his time. What is restraining the man of lawlessness now? The God who has control over all things. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he, God, who now restrains it, will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. That's what we see in Jesus' coming. The abomination of desolation, don't fear all that other stuff. Jesus is going to kill him. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Why is he coming? Because people hate God. They love themselves. They love lies. They don't love the truth. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth had pleasure in unrighteousness. That is why Jesus is coming. And Paul connects it. The culmination of wickedness will show us the heart of man, and Jesus will come and kill it all. Now we pick up in Mark. But in those days, Matthew adds, Matthew 24, 29, immediately after that tribulation, he makes the distinction the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Immediately after that tribulation, it's going to get worse. But from there, there is going to be cosmic shaking. There is going to be cosmic tribulation and then the coming. That will show us when the coming happens. This cosmic destruction is common in the prophets. In Zephaniah, we looked at the, the, the language of the, the darkening of the sun and the falling of the stars we saw in Daniel. And I could go again and again and again. Old Testament, New Testament. Heaven and earth shall pass away. These old things, they're going to fall. In fact, every phrase in verses 24 through 27 is almost a direct quote from the Old Testament. Every phrase, every idea in verses 24 through 27 are just paraphrasings or quotations from the Old Testament. Jesus is showing us himself in all of the Old Testament scriptures. So the, the, the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven. The powers of heavens will be shaken. So a couple quick things to note here. All of the false gods and, and pagan religions, they thought stars were gods. 
They thought their gods remained in the heavens. All the things they looked up to to worship the creation and said the creator, God's going to bring that down and destroy it. And then, verse 26, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Clouds, this is symbolism of God's divine presence and his power. This is our last passage from Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. We should know this well. The vision, the Son of Man in the Ancient of Days. One like a son of man standing before the ancient of days. Daniel saw this vision. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. The sky will be shaken, the earth will be shaken, but his kingdom will not be. Understand this, reader. I am talking about the Son of Man from Daniel. It is his kingdom that you shall look forward to. Don't worry about this abomination of desolation. He will be killed. This is what Jesus is getting at here. Helpful? Hopefully. And what will he do when he returns? He is going to kill that evil prince. He is going to judge, but he is also going to gather. Verse 26, he's going to gather his saints and he's going to recreate. Because what was destroyed, what was, what was brought to desolation will now be re rebuilt up and it will never fall again. His kingdom is unshakable. The stuff that is shakable, the, st the stuff that is temporary will pass away. But when he comes, the first thing he's, do, he's going to do, he's coming for the elect. And he will send out his angels. Again, these are not hallmark cards with wings and halos. These are mighty warriors. The hosts of heaven who are coming to gather his people in. And where will he gather them? From the four winds. Every direction. North, south, east, west. Wherever you are, if you are his, he is coming for you. Even the end of heaven. The end of earth, the end of heaven. All those who have died... All those who are still living, everyone, where will they be gathered? From every place to one man, the Son of Man. This is what we will see in Jesus' second coming. You won't have to ask if it's him. So before we get into our application, we are not to, be, to fear or be consumed with the what's, the when's, the how's. If you are hidden in Christ, it doesn't matter. If your faith is in him, if you have turned from the world and the wickedness that will turn into desolation, he is, you, you are his and he is coming for you. He will gather you. And a question I get often, this is a real question and I want to be honest here. Whenever someone asks me, I don't, people have a problem with the doctrine of election. And they'll ask, I don't like the doctrine of election because what if I'm not elect? What if my sister's not elect? If you are asking, what if I am the elect, that is the best thing that I can ever hear from you. Because you actually care. It is a great sign to say, I don't want to be apart from Jesus. I want to be with him. I want to be saved. Good. It's a good sign that the Holy Spirit is working within you. If you don't ask and you don't care, I'm pretty worried. 
But on the other side of that, what about my brother or my cousin or the one I love? Are they elect? First and foremost, you are not God. This is above your, your pay grade. You can trust him. He's good. He's, he knows what he's doing. And we don't have to know who are his and who are not. But be careful. There is often a temptation to say, I have heard people say, well, if my dad, my brother's not going to be in heaven, I don't want to go. If you love people more than you love God, then you don't deserve him. And you won't deserve the people either. So, Here's what I want to leave you with. I'm going to turn to 1 Thessalonians 4 in our final application. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to read this passage and not be intimidated. Hey, you can study it for the rest of your life, and I hope you do. But here's what I want you to take away. There is wickedness. Absolutely. Is it going to get more wicked? Yeah. Are the birth pains going to get closer together? Yep. Is Jesus coming back? Absolutely. I was thinking about this. Anyone have, like, I, I wish I did, but anyone have, like, a big brother or older cousin who is your protector? It's things that you see in movies that I never knew. No? No one? Okay. I'm just going to use it figuratively. Um, but that idea that if I'm getting beat up on the playground and I'm, getting, and I'm getting bullied and I've got my big brother coming, and I can't, I can't wait. I'm going to show you guys. My dad is bigger and stronger than you. My brother is bigger and stronger than you. If you are in, if you are God's children, if you are his, if you have turned from your sin and turned to him, Jesus is your big brother. And you may be, there may be tribulation. You may be pushed around to the playground for a little while, but he's going to come and destroy them. Amen. Amen. That is what this passage is to tell us. Yeah, it's going to get rough. I guarantee it. But I'm tougher. I'm bigger. I'm stronger. And I'm going to take care of all of this. So here's what I want you to see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to read a big section. Josh says we've got time, so I guess we've got time. Now, this is where we'll end, and I've got a few points of application here. 1 Thessalonians 4.15. Paul is dealing with this directly, so... I can't cut it short. We're gonna look, I'm going to read a big passage, but a few applications here. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. There will be no separation of the saints. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. What I want you to see there is you won't have to ask if Jesus is coming. That's what Jesus' coming is going to look like. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him. It's where the word rapture comes from. Only time in, in Scripture, and it's not even what it means. With them in the clouds. Sorry, I said I wouldn't get into eschatology. In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. The point here is that God will come for all of, of his own. Because the end of things is happening. We know this by where Paul goes. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's the point of all this. Don't get worried. Be encouraged. Encourage one another. Don't worry about the hows and the winds. Encourage one another. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, I can hear Paul saying here, come on. You have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then, southern then sudden destruction will come upon them. 
Next thing here. Don't worry about the day. Jesus said, well, don't worry about the day. Paul said, don't worry about the day. But don't be caught up in false, a false sense of security. There are too many Christians who are kicking back, thinking it's going to be like this, and everything's good. I'm just going to find my peace on earth. It will not happen. Don't find peace and security here on earth because you will be like the virgins who ran out of oil in their lamps. You will have, you will have no light when the master returns. Here's how Paul describes it. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. This destruction is like labor pains. Paul's continuing this picture that Jesus started. Now here's another application where I want you to pay attention. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. All right, here's what I want to say. This is very practical here. I want to get literal on this passage. We are people of the day, not people of the night. Many of you know I was a, I was a nightclub DJ for 10 years. Most of my time was spent in the night. There is nothing good that happens from being up all night. I want to be honest to many of you right now, especially men. If you are a man of darkness, most of your hours are in the darkness. You, you go to sleep late, you wake up late, and you wonder why you are being attacked or struggling in your faith. That's why. We are to be people of light. We are to be people who are sober-minded. You want to get caught off guard? Be running after the world late at night in the darkness of your room or the dark corners of the world. We are people of day. We walk in light. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Until he returns, walk in light. Do not walk in darkness. Do not be known for the things of darkness. Men especially. You want to be leaders in the church? You want to be leaders in your home? We ought to be the first ones up. We ought to be ones who are productive during the day, not following after things in the darkness. Why? Because we have put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. This is our identity. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we don't fear these things. Wrath is coming. God he has wrathful judgment for the evil one and all those who follow him. But if we are in Christ, that is not us. How do we know that? Because he died for us. Because he died for us. How are we to not be scared when we read the scriptures? The gospel is our encouragement. The gospel is our reminder that Jesus died for us. He is our hope of salvation. He is our faith in our love. And so whether we are asleep or we are awake, we will live with him. Don't fear death. Jesus has overcome the grave. Don't be afraid if your life gets cut short. Don't be afraid if your life is long and you don't want to be here. You will be with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. That's the purpose of this whole thing, to be an encouragement. So many people read this and get caught up in fear. Encourage one another in this. 
Don't worry about all of the middle stuff. We know the end. Build one another up in this. Remind each other of this. Preach the gospel to yourselves and one another day after day after day. Jesus died for you. You are hidden in him. What does that mean? That means that his wrath no longer rests upon you. That is our motivation for preaching, for teaching, for discipleship, for evangelism. Because God's wrath is real and his punishment is real, but his love and those he loves, his elect, no one can snatch them out of his hand and nothing can separate us from him. Be encouraged in that and encourage one another in that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and awesome and gracious. You have pulled us out of the depths, out of the pit of despair of our own sin and shame and your just wrath. Not that we should fear, but we should be joyful and we should be encouraged. Lord, help us to be people of light, of encouragement. Help us to spur one another on in the truth of the gospel, in the light of our salvation. That these light momentary afflictions are nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory. That we would look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. That we would know him and know his words. That we would be sober-minded. We would be awake because we love him, because we are united to him, and we know his voice. Lord, strengthen your people, encourage your people as dark days come and as days of peace come. Help us not to be lulled to sleep by the false securities of the world. Let us be on our guard. Our bridegroom is returning and we will welcome him because he is our salvation. He is our hope. He is our assurance. He is our life and we are blessed in him. Let's sing and praise him in response. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.